and welcome to the Katie Helper Show. Please rate and review the show on iTunes. It helps get the word out about the show. Also, please support the show by becoming a Patreon supporter at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. For as little as $1 a month, you help make this show happen. And for $5 a month, you get exclusive content like extended interviews and bonus interviews. Or you can think of it as a quarter every weekday, 25 cents every day of the week, not including weekends. This episode of The Katie Helper Show has two interviews. I talked to Claire Daly and Mick Wallace, members of the European Parliament. But first, I speak to Lev Galinkin. Hello, everyone. Welcome to The Katie Helper Show. So excited to be here with you. We got a great show for you. We're going to be joined by Lev Galinkin, who is going to talk about a very important op-ed that he wrote that he actually was able to get into the New York Times. I say that because sometimes the New York Times, um, well, they don't necessarily let in great pieces of uh, writing, but sometimes they do, and this is one of those cases. And his piece is called Why Do Stanford, Harvard, and NASA Still Honor a Nazi Past? And we're going to be talking to him about the kind of whitewashing of Nazism that happens there and in other places. And then I'm going to show part of an interview that I did with Claire Daly, and Mick Wallace. They are members of the European Parliament. They are Irish. They're great. They're very feisty. They really speak truth to power. And you've probably seen clips of them speaking in the European Parliament about war, about Julian Assange, about sanctions. So we're going to see part of that too. And then the rest of that will be available at Patreon. That's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. But we're going to be bringing on to the stage, the virtual stage, the wonderful Lev Galinkin, who's the author of A Backpack, A Bear, and Eight Crates of Vodka, which is really good. I listened to it on Audible. It's a great book. He's a graduate of Boston College. He came to the U.S. as a child refugee from the eastern Ukrainian city of Kharkov, now Kharkiv, in 1990. His op-eds and essays on Ukraine have appeared in the New York Times, Los Angeles Times, the Boston Globe, and Time.com, among others. He's been interviewed by the Wall Street Journal and Democracy Now!, HuffPost Live. So welcome, Lev. Hi, thank you for having me. Of course. Thank you so much for joining. This is a great piece that you've written. It is called, again, once more, it's called Why Do Stanford, Harvard, and NASA Still Honor a Nazi Past? So tell us what made you write this article. Um, a while ago, I did a project for the Forward, which is a U.S. Jewish uh, outlet chronicling the various uh, honors to Nazi collaborators, chronicling statues. And in the process, I happened to run across uh, the fact that Harvard and Stanford and NASA all were honoring these um, these Nazis that, and when I say Nazis, they don't just mean Nazis in like a sort of descriptive someone's a Nazi way. I mean like members of the Nazi party, people who are deeply involved with concentration camp slave labor, and one of one of whom was convicted in Nuremberg. So, I mean, literal Nazi Nazis. Um, at first, I was concentrating my research on Europe, and I didn't really believe that I didn't I didn't even consider that the U.S. would have these honors naively. Um, and then a couple of readers started reaching out and saying, "You need to look at this." And uh, I started looking at it, and then I d- sort of discovered uh, that, especially the Harvard and Stanford part, that's uh, that's a brand new thing that's coming out in this article. Uh, that they have these these uh, scholarships, in one case a professorship, uh, in honor of a man convicted in Nuremberg, and I was pretty stunned by it. I just I, I couldn't believe that they would do this so openly. You can go on their websites and see it. Um, 
And then I also saw how NASA and other places in America are honoring these Nazi scientists who use concentration camp labor and who also designed weapons that were used to kill civilians and American soldiers. Your article focuses on three men, right? Yep. So one is Alfred Krupp. Yep. Let's take a look at him. We have a picture of him from 1957. There he is, looking quite dapper. We also have a picture of one of his factories in Germany, which is uh, this right here. So another image, pretty different from that other one. And there's, I mean, there's images of, you know, here there's images of his trial. Yeah. Of, uh, I mean, to, de- to describe. So basically Nuremberg, what they did is they had this giant tribunal to judge the Nazis. Okay. That's where they hanged a few Nazis. Um, and then afterwards, what they had are these 12 subsets. They had these 12 trials, these subsequent in total trials. And some of them were, there's one trial, for example, of Nazi doctors who did medical experiments. There's another one of like death squad leaders. Um, Alfred Krupp was so involved in, with the Nazis that he required his own trial. A separate trial was simply for him and his organization. Okay. This is a man who had a slave-built factory in Auschwitz. This is somebody who used 100,000 concentration camp slaves. These are, And God knows how many of them were, were murdered. I mean, they, they were worked to their death. As, as one prosecutor said it, basically, they, they worked them until they couldn't work no more, and, and then uh, the SS would take them away to be killed. Uh, and this is somebody who was a crucial part of the German, um, of the German war machine. So this is about somebody as irredeemable as, as, as can get. Uh, during his trial, he basically he basically said, I was doing my duty. He basically just shrugged, okay? So for all of this, okay, he was given a 12 years in prison, of which he only served six, okay? So for like, he, crimes against humanity is six years, okay? That's what he got. At which point, the United States government, which had control of West Germany at the time, released him and not only did they release him, they gave him back all of his blood money. Okay? So he walked out of prison. Okay, after six six years at the most in prison, he walked out and they handed him all of his money, making him one of the richest people in Germany, if not the world, again. Um, at this point, he, um, he decided to uh, create a foundation, okay? Uh, a foundation uh, in his name right before his death. And he left all of his funds to this foundation. This foundation now sponsors, has just been using this money, his, his blood money, the money that he got from, from working with the Nazis and from using slaves, to establish scholarships. Uh, they built a hospital in Germany. They built a, sc- a couple of schools. The Krupp Internship Program, for instance. Exactly. Now, uh, uh, here's a fun thing about the Krupp Internship Program. Until about a month ago, it did not list... Uh, the fact that he was a war criminal. Harvard still does not list it at all. Um, they, uh, I contacted them, and uh, interestingly, at some point after I originally contacted them, they put up the fact that he was a war criminal. They, as of the end of September, this was not on their website at all. Wow. And this is all in the open. Harvard has a professorship for it, and um, they've basically they've been whitewashing his name. They've just been, this foundation has just been pumping money in, into buildings, into charitable projects, into fellowships. And um, these universities have accepted this. A ton of universities in Germany also have this. And 
bear in mind, this, this is the insane part, okay? Harvard's president, Harvard's current president, um, is the son of a concentration camp survivor. His mother, when he became president, Stanford put out this press release that highlighted the fact he was the son of a concentration camp survivor. His mother was a concentration camp slave in Auschwitz. So here you have the president of one of the top schools in the world leading the son of a survivor, leading a school that has a chair, a professorship, and a scholarship for a man who had a slave-based factory in Auschwitz and imprisoned around 100,000 slaves, including Auschwitz prisoners and prisoners of war and children, by the way, uh, the uh, crop imprisoned tons of children. I mean, to me, that's the, these were established in 1974, long before this president came in. But I mean, that's just, that's a pretty heavy thing to have, just being the son of a survivor and then just having, running a school that has this, that honors this man. And he came from a real dynasty, right, Krupp? Yeah, he came from a real dynasty. He, he was the last of his dynasty. The way that these foundations work is they really humanize these people, saying, you know, well, he was imprisoned for a while, but, you know, let him who has not sinned cast the first stone. So, I mean, his foundation, I mean, for example, says, you know, his company, Thyssen Krupp, talk about he did not have a happy personal life because he, you know, he was married and divorced three times. So, I mean, you know, I guess he didn't luck out on love, but he hit the jackpot with war crimes. So, yeah, so everything they do is just, and, and they do this so brazenly. I think one of the reasons they've been able to get away with it is people just, it's hard for people to believe that this is, that this is happening. And it's all over Germany and it's in our top schools. Can you talk about Operation Paperclip? Yeah. The Nazis had tremendous scientific advances. And at the end of the war, the United States, the, uh, the Soviet Union, and Britain were involved in hunting down Nazi scientists. So, I mean, there were teams of Americans fighting and trying to get to these people before the Soviets had to snatch them up. And so what we did is we took the Nazis' knowledge, and the Nazis had amazing rocket technology. And we brought these people. And again, these people were members of the Nazi party. They were officers in the SS. They were not just like scientists locked up in a lab. I mean, these people visited the concentration camps where these rockets were built, where the slaves were killed. They knew exactly what the rockets were there for. They attended parties when the rockets were launched. So we took these men and we brought them into America and we used them and they became the founding fathers of NASA. And they built rockets for us. And then they started working with NASA when NASA wasn't even there, I don't think. They, and they, they played a big part of us going to the moon. Now, and these are the two people who I talk about, Werner von Braun and Kurt Debus, and they're honored by NASA, they're honored by Huntsville, they're honored by the U.S. Army. I have a document that I put together. One second, let me just do this. I think this may be the easiest way to do it. Why don't you say it in a song? Yeah, it's very hard to talk about this. I mean, it's almost like laughable. You gotta laugh. You gotta laugh to something. You have to laugh, yeah. So this is Alfred Krupp, as we were talking about. Here's the Krupp Foundation Dissertation Research Fellowship. It makes it look like it's just this, this wholesome fellowship. Oh, and, and, and recently it was used to fund research into slavery, which is just oh, another. Oh, wow. That's yeah. rich. Yeah. Exactly. So the Krupp Foundation Dissertation Research Fellowship funds Harvard doctoral students in the Faculty of Arts and Sciences and MIT doctoral students in the Social Sciences. What's interesting, by the way, is that I understand that some people were, 
let's say, forced to, I mean, this is a huge question, the moral culpability of people who lived in Germany at the time. But you'd think that even if they were going to use this guy for geopolitical, geostrategic reasons, that they would take his name off of things. Basically, what a lot of people are saying is the, the, the choice that America had was hang them or hire them, okay? With the scientists and people, which is fine. Okay, we live in the real world. If we didn't get these people, the Soviet Union would have gotten them. West Germany needed to be financially solvent and a, and a strong bulwark of Western freedom and democracy. If you was fine, okay, but we did. We celebrated them. We didn't just. They should have been on their knees every day, thanking for not for the fact that they weren't swinging from a rope. But we took it a million steps further. There's a giant difference between. And I, and I thought about it a lot with the, with the moral thing, because these, especially the scientists, I mean, I don't think they were particularly, like, I don't think they were born evil. I just think they were, like, with the I think they were just utterly immoral. At least one of them, Kurt Debus, was a very committed Nazi. He, um, if you read the book Operation Paperclip, which is how they brought these Nazis into America, there's a fantastic book about it called Operation Paperclip. There's also another one called The Nazis Next Door, and it's all about our relationship with them. So, I mean, one of them denounced uh, a, a member of his a colleague to the Gestapo, the Third Reich Secret Police. I mean, this is like you announce somebody to the Gestapo. You're basically saying you're basically making sure this person has a high chance of getting killed. He wore his SS uniform to work. So the, the choice basically is, I mean, look, these people, they got their lives. OK, if you look on the scale, they got their lives. First of all, they got to do research that any scientist would dream of. They got the biggest grant in the history of grants. They got the support of the biggest government ever. They became celebrities. They were on covers of Time magazine. They met with presidents. They now have bases, uh, have centers, and, and uh, including with the U.S. Army after them. The people who they murdered in order to get to build their rockets don't even have a grave. Their bodies were thrown in pit like trash, in pits like trash. So if you look on the overall balance of things, I think that asking for them to be honored and completely whitewashed may be a little bit too much on that side. And the same thing with Alfred Krupp. He should, he should have been happy he wasn't hanged. Every day he should have been on his knees thinking that he wasn't hanged. And instead, he was just he never apologized. He just said, I'm just doing my job. This is somebody who's irredeemable. And we are celebrating them. So this goes beyond just using somebody for geopolitical purposes. And one last thing I'll just say, the other extraordinary thing we're doing is we are erasing history by using them. People say that, oh, you know, people who want statues to come down are erasing history. Actually, it's NASA and Harvard and Stanford who are erasing history because they're acting like these people just came out of nowhere, like these people didn't have a past. You see all these people who, who whitewash Von Braun, the main, the main Nazi scientist, and they're acting like I wrote in the New York Times piece. They're acting like he dropped out of the sky, like Mary Poppins, out of nowhere with no background, no past. Oh, Werner von Braun came here after World War II. What did he do before it? Nobody knows. He just appeared. Right. Well, let's here. I made this. Here again, here's Krupp. Then we have Dr. Werner von Braun, who worked on the V-2 ballistic missile. Yeah, this, is, this was used to murder civilians in, in England and around. I mean, there he is with Kennedy. There he is with JFK. Here he is on the cover of Time. Here is the performing arts space, the Von Braun Center. Yep, this is owned by the city of Huntsville. Okay, so this is city-owned. Then we have the research hall. University of Alabama, a state school that gets a lot of federal contracts because they do a lot of research in, in, um, in rocketry. 
Then we have the U.S. Space and Rocket Center. A Smithsonian-affiliated museum, a federally-affiliated museum that's owned by the state of Alabama. So this is, again, this is this is part of our federal government. And what's interesting is that they have a section in the About the History and Overview. It says, Dr. Werner Von Braun and his team of rocket scientists transformed Huntsville, Alabama, known in the 1950s as the watercress capital of the world, into a technology center that today is home to the second largest research park in the United States and to the U.S. Space and Rocket Center with its world-class educational program, Space Camp. The transformation grew from the smoke and fire that birthed America's space program. It is here in Huntsville that, and then they go through some of the accomplishments, rockets were developed that put the first U.S. satellite into orbit and sent men to the moon, et cetera, et cetera. Well, the U.S. Space and Rocket Center used to have, this is a museum, this is a giant museum that people visit, their most spectacular thing, and they got rid of this. I, I first noted this in January in the forward. They had a giant plaque overlooking one of their floors, and they had a quote from Von Braun, and the quote was, the rocket will free mankind of his remaining chains, the chains of gravity. Okay, this is like, I mean, this is from a man who murdered 10,000 people who were slaves in order to build his rockets. I mean, this is just a little bit, this is just a this is like Bill Cosby walking around with a shirt that says, I got 99 problems, but a bitch ain't one. Okay, that's a little bit, it's it's celebrating the crime, you know? And I, I'm, I'm very grateful that the U.S. Space and Rockets Center got rid of it, but they still, it's, they still whitewash the hell out of these people. And this is a museum. This is a museum that's basically just ignoring history and ignore, and, and lying by omission. Again, this is a, a, an institution, a federally, uh, a federally tied institution, a Smithsonian affiliate. This is the scholarship named after him at the University of Alabama in Huntsville. Yep. It says, the Dr. Werner Von Braun Scholarship. The Dr. Werner Von Braun Scholarship is awarded to a deserving student who has demonstrated a dedicated desire to apply his or her talents in the field of rocketry or astronautics. Recipients must be a junior or senior level majoring in a space-related field and planning to pursue a career in the space-related field and have demonstrated academic merit and leadership. I'm glad they don't require Nazi experience. I was just going to say that. What Do they do they inquire an SS number? Yeah. And then there's Redstone Arsenal, which is a U.S. Army post, right? Which praises Vaughn. Let's see. Sorry, it's hard to keep track of all the, the praising that happens. They praise him. Plus, there's NASA praising Dr. Kurt Debus. They named a venue after him. It's the Dr. Kurt H. Debus Conference Facility. He worked on the same missile with Von Braun. He's the one who turned the colleague over to the Gestapo. Right. He's that one. So he's like a real enthusiastic Nazi. And here is the biography of Debus, which uh, just says he was uh, the first director of NASA's JFK Space Center. He came to the United States in 1954 to participate in ballistic missile system development programs of the U.S. Army at Fort Bliss, Texas, in 1950. The group was relocated to Redstone Arsenal at Huntsville, Alabama, which became the focal point of the Army's rocket and space projects. The rockets were launched with Cape Canaveral. So that's some more honors. And that's the Kennedy Space Center, actual NASA. Yep. And the, uh, Kennedy Space, NASA is a part of the federal government. Okay. It's an agency operating within the federal government. And their director, just the other day, this was earlier this year, the director accepted the Kurt Debus Award. And when NASA was celebrating this, okay, so this is the director of the Kennedy Space Center. And NASA's press release about it said nothing about where he came from and who he was. And again, this is this is just. Uh, I mean, what I really have to stress 
is that this goes, this is beyond Jewish issues. This is beyond the issues of the Eastern European, like a lot of Ukrainian from my country, Ukraine, a lot of Ukrainians were kidnapped and forced to work in these places, people from the Baltics. This goes beyond this. These are men who created weapons that were used to murder American soldiers, the greatest generation. Over 416,000 American troops perished in this, including graduates from Harvard and Stanford and students from Harvard and Stanford. And this is the U.S. Army and the U.S. agency, NASA, honoring an, an enemy of America. I mean, again, we, we use these titles a lot, but I mean, these, these truly were an enemy of America. Okay? These truly were people who served one of the most evil regimes in history. So it's just amazing that Tom Hanks had to run around begging for money to have a World War II memorial. It took a long time. It wasn't until I think like 2001 and the government, he, he, he was fundraising all these other celebrities were begging for people, for American citizens to give their money. And long before all of these things were, for many of the, there were already honors. You know, long before America had a World War II memorial commemorating the soldiers who lost their lives fighting in World War II, Harvard was long celebrating the Nazi Krupp. And some of these other places were already starting to honor uh, Nazi scientists. So it's just, this is something that I think it shouldn't be a very tough thing to discuss. This isn't an issue of founding fathers. This isn't an issue. There's really little nuance here. Okay, these are just disgusting and dangerous stains on America. Yeah, and you actually have a map. Should we go through this map that you made? Yeah, this map is for my project. This is for the project for the forward, where I noticed... I came to this while covering neo-Nazis, and I noticed wherever there were neo-Nazis, there were also monuments and celebrations of this. So this happened before the New York Times. And I chronicled, I mean, well over 1,500 various monuments. And if you go, the, the top ones are in America. And these aren't just for Krupp. These are for Ukrainian collaborators. These are for French collaborators. These are for Serbian collaborators. You can just go in and see this, uh, a Russian, Russian collaborator. So if you click in on New York, for example, okay, let, you're in New York, I'm in New Jersey. I am within 20, 25 minutes of a monument to Belarusian collaborators who worked to give the Nazi soldiers that participate in the Holocaust. You, Katie, are closer than me. You can go to New York and you can walk on plaques of two French collaborators who sent, I think, about like 80,000 uh, Jews to their deaths in Auschwitz. And when New York was asked to remove the plaques, at first de Blasio said, well, yeah, we're going to do it. Th- then he formed a committee. And this is this is the Holocaust. These people who participated in the Holocaust, these are people who were with the enemy. They said he was going to form, he formed a committee. And after three months, the committee met and said that, you know, we shouldn't remove these, but we should use them as a teaching moment. They didn't really say what the teaching moment was. And the plaques are removed. So you can go right now and you can see men who were Nazi pawns, who were, they were, I mean, when we stormed the beaches of Normandy, these were the people who France was run by, Vichy France, the the French collaborator government. And here they are, you can, uh, they have plaques with no explanation, just celebrate, they're in New York's Canyon of Heroes, that's what the plaques is, they're in the Canyon of Heroes. Yeah, if you want to make something a teachable moment, then you have to recontextualize it. You can't just leave it there. Oh, yeah. This was not, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll be very quick about it. In World War I, there were heroes. In World War II, they became Nazi collaborators. During World War I, they got tickets. After World War I, they were celebrated with ticker tape parades. So then they put up these plaques to everybody who got the parades, but without any context or anything. 
without seeing the this okay it's like putting up a plaque to oj simpson saying you know he was a great football guy with no plaque of you know what else happened the bottom line is all of these institutions all these groups they treat americans like idiots they treat they just in addition to this being a spit in the face of uh, holocaust survivors and veterans they just treat americans as if we can't process the fact that somebody could be a hero and then somebody could become a villain that's the, the the things are complicated they just erase history and so tell us about the responses to this that you got from the different institutions. Harvard had no comments. Uh, most of them had uh, either, they just confirmed what I said. I just checked if it was accurate with no comments. And a couple of places said that they're working to do historical context, okay? So like the U.S. Space and Rocket Center, I think it was mentioned in the articles, they said, we're working to present greater historical context. I'm sorry. It's been, what, since 1945? And you've been working to present the basic fact that you're honoring Nazis and you're still working on it. And these are museums. These are institutions. A lot of them are federally funded. And it was stunning how just the lack of response I got. And this is just in 2022. And, you know, and Stanford and Harvard both put out, Stanford recently put out this giant study about slavery and facing history and facing up to slavery. Stanford in October just put out a big report about anti-Semitism and admissions and how they were biased against Jews and they're and and this is you know saying this is facing history while while honoring these men and while just seemingly not seeming to care or respond to it. When I just contacted them, I mean, like I said, Harvard just said no comment. Stanford basically just confirmed what they had. And why do you think this is that they're doing this? Because on the one hand, you have people who will claim that something that isn't necessarily anti-Semitic. I mean, I talk about this a lot, right? You'll have someone criticize Israel and they're called an anti-Semite. So you have this hypersensitivity, this weaponization of anti-Semitism, but then you're allowed to name things after actual Nazis or Nazi collaborators. Why do you think that is? Well, part of it is because the problem is these people were backed by the American government. These people were taken in by us. These people made, we were in bed with them. We are the ones who freed Alfred Krupp. We are the ones who gave him his money back. The man who did this was the man in charge of Germany, the U.S. High Commissioner for Germany, John J. McClure, who is uh, another interesting guy who just, he was, uh, he was the one who was the instrumental behind having the Japanese internment camps. So I guess you could say he's pretty pro-concentration camps. He also, I think, prevented us from bombing the railroad tracks at Auschwitz. And Harvard has, uh, I think, an honor for him in their business, in their leadership school. But anyway... If we start criticizing these people, we criticize ourselves as a society, and nobody likes doing that. So they, they've used this to fly under the radar. But this is, I mean, listen, if Kanye West posting a swastika and going insane on anti-Semitism, just spewing stuff out, if that's worthy of condemnations, what excuse do Harvard, Stanford, what excuse does NASA have, what excuse does the U.S. Army have? Kanye West is, however you want to describe it, Kanye West is a guy who's a little bit different, I guess, you know, generously would say this. Kanye West is a guy who's got a lot of various things going on. Harvard, and these are institutions. These are people with, with perfectly sane, with just with professors, with some of the brightest minds in the world. And they're just doing this and they're able to do it. And I'll just say one very small thing, but it's, I've been covering neo-Nazis a lot and what they do. And I'll tell you this, covering this has been just, there's been an extra layer of cynicism on top of it. Because the neo-Nazis, at least, they don't, the neo-Nazis don't churn out reports saying how they're going to face up to their past 
and how they're going to address human rights issues and how bigotry should be condemned everywhere. The neo-Nazis at least have the decency to be honest about why they love who they love and why they're honoring who they're honoring. There's just something really disturbing about leading leading institutions just doing this. And I, and I think this is just something that there's a lot we disagree on, but this shouldn't be a, this should be a pretty easy thing to agree about. Speaking of neo-Nazis and whitewashing, can you talk about the Azov Battalion and what that is for those listeners who don't know and how they're being represented right now? Yeah, I was one of the first ones to report on Azov uh, very early on in 2014. They were a group that was formed out of a neo-Nazi community. Don't go anywhere, guys, because you're about to hear a great interview with Claire Daly and Mick Wallace. But after you listen to Claire and Mick, you're definitely going to want to listen to the Patreon or join the Patreon if you're not already a member. So you can listen to not only the full interview with Claire and Mick, but also the extended interview with Lev Galinkin, where he talks about Ukraine's neo-Nazi Azov Battalion and the way they're totally whitewashed. All of that is at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Now on to Claire Daly and Mick Wallace. They're Irish members of the European Parliament, and they also co-host the podcast, I Foresee Trouble. Claire Daly and Mick Wallace, thank you so much for joining the show. Pleasure is all ours. No problem. <laughs> so just as a, if an initial question, can you tell listeners and viewers what the function of the European Parliament is? How much time have you got? <laughs> Jeez, you started with a really hard one there, and now we're going to go, oh my God, how are we going to answer oh, this? Jesus Christ. Uh, what's the function of the European Parliament? Or like that's just hard... for people who don't know what it, yeah, just in general for people who don't, you know, people are kind of uh, familiar with members of Parliament by a country, but I don't think that they know necessarily what the European Parliament is. Well, they're in good company because most of the people of Europe don't know what that is either. Um I suppose the European Parliament is the only directly elected body of the European Union institutions. It's ruled kind of by a tripartite system. You have the European Commission, which are nominees from each of the member states, their appointees, with a big civil service behind them. They're the power brokers. Then you have the council. They are the countries. Uh, They're also powerful. And then you have the parliament, which is the only directly elected ones. We can't initiate legislation, but we are a co-legislator, so we can block some legislation. So, uh, yeah, it's a bit weird. It's not really like any other parliament anywhere else, you know. But we were directly elected from Ireland. We are two of Ireland's 13 uh, members. There's 700 MEPs overall from the 27 member states. Yeah, so as opposed to national parliaments, uh, every five years there's... uh direct elections to the European Parliament uh, in each of the member states. Uh, when we stood first in 2019, Ireland had 11 members, but that became 13 when the Brits pulled out with Brexit because all the seats that um, Britain gave up uh, were distributed uh, out according to um, any recent increases in population or not. Uh, so Ireland's uh, quota became 13. So we were... Uh, two of the 11 originally. Uh, so um, generally speaking, uh, people kind of think of um, Parliament as the kind of running a country, but um, do the European Parliament run Europe? Well, that's debatable because a lot of the power remains with the member state. Uh, the European Union, uh, we would say, is gradually getting uh, garnering more and more of the power for itself, is looking to centralise authority more. And... Uh, Without getting complicated about it, uh, we had um, 
we 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 signed a treaty in uh, called the Lisbon Treaty and uh, a treaty called the Nice Treaty. In the last twenty years, uh, we opposed both of them, and in Ireland. Uh, the Irish people had a vote on both treaties and they voted against both of them. But uh, the Europeans didn't like the results, so they made us vote again. And uh, so apart from threats and uh, and carrots and sweets, uh, they uh, they presented a different scenario each time. Uh, and uh, the vote was successful from a European perspective, uh, second time round each time. But those two treaties uh, would very much have enshrined right-wing neoliberalism uh, at the heart of uh, European Union law. Uh, so uh, fixing the European Union, making it a body that represents its citizens uh, more so than it represents the interests of big business would actually require reversing those treaties. So it's a big task. One of the things that you recently spoke out against was the, I guess, the resolution to declare Russia a state sponsor of terrorism. How did that vote go and why did you speak out against it? <laughs> well, I suppose for us, it's indicative of the fact that the European Parliament to us is becoming increasingly extremist in its views, even beyond what the EU governments would be, the parliament is in some ways worse. So there is nothing in EU law to recognise the concept state sponsor of terrorism. It obviously exists in EU law. It doesn't exist, or in US law, it doesn't exist in EU law, but the parliament still passed this. Now, there were 17% of the members didn't support the resolution. So maybe 50-something of us voted against, 40-something abstained. That actually is a big move forward because on the original move on the on the Russian war, it was about 13% of us voted against the resolution. So, I mean, the reasons why we voted against it was, A, it was meaningless. It's about the equivalent of name-calling. But we actually had MEPs getting up afterwards, members of parliament getting up and bragging that after the vote that uh, Russia had attacked Ukraine, and this was a kind of a result, I mean, these people are mental, and uh, that there had been a sort of a mini cyber attack on the parliament. And this proves that we had an impact. Now, apart from being mar narcissistic in total, I mean, the cyber hack could have been done by a bunch of vigilantes in their bedroom. It wasn't sophisticated. It was claimed afterwards by a sort of a Russian nationalist pro-Kremlin sort of bedroom boy league it wasn't necessarily linked to the state or anything. Um, but yeah, I mean, this is lunacy. If, if Russia is a state sponsor of terrorism, well, then so is the US, so is Israel. It's meaningless, you know. Yeah, uh, we, we pointed out to them that uh, you're, you're going to have to, um, anyone that goes to war, you're going to have to call them uh, state sponsors of terrorism then. And, and to a point, uh, anyone that engages in war uh, does engage in a form of terrorism. Because uh, we made the point that uh, if the Russians are dropping bombs on uh, residential areas in Ukraine, uh, then uh, are they terrorizing the people in the apartments? Absolutely, they are. If, if, if you're in a, if you're in an apartment block and there's bombs being dropped, and even if you're not being targeted, if they're dropping close to you, well, you, you'd be fairly terrorized that they might drop on you. And uh, so, uh, war in involves terrorizing people, especially if you use aerial bombing uh, in particular, and uh, and as we as we've pointed out, uh, 
most of the wars that we've known in our lifetime have been started by US or NATO countries. Uh, so they've been terrorizing the living daylights of an awful lot of people. I mean, when the Americans killed uh, over a million citizens in Iraq, uh, it was very strange the European Parliament didn't want to call them terrorists uh, or uh, state sponsors of terrorism, given that they were, certainly were terrorizing the living daylights out of uh, the people of Iraq, as they've done in uh, Afghanistan, as they did in Libya, as they did in Belgrade back in the 90s, as the done in, in Syria by arming the jihadists. I mean, where does it stop? And God knows the Israelis are still terrorizing uh, the Palestinians every goddamn day. Well, it's mad that the Biden administration didn't even, you know, where he could do it in the US, actually pass this, chose not to because it would be an impediment to peace later on. Obviously, the US doesn't want peace now, but at a certain stage they will. And it's just indicative of how extreme the European Parliament has become, that actually they're quite open about the fact that they don't want peace. They're quite happy to have working class young people from Ukraine basically be a meat grinder in a, a war or a revenge against Russia, thinking we're going to beat those Ruskies. Like, it's just absolutely appalling stuff, really is. Yeah, I mean, uh, listeners, your listeners might be a bit shocked to hear that... Uh, Myself and Claire put in an amendment at the plenary in October uh, onto the Russian resolution. And our amendments called on the EU to explore all opportunities to, to find peace uh, and to begin dialogue and diplomacy in order to bring an end to the war. And of the MEPs who voted, 436 voted against that amendment. In other words, they wanted the war to continue. 118 voted for it. The rest either abstained or, uh, or weren't present. So what it meant was that close to 80% of the MEPs that, vo that voted on the issue uh, were voting for war and were opposing peace. Now, uh, that's in stark contrast uh, to the research that's been done across Europe. Uh, and, and there was a European body called the European Council for Foreign Relations, uh, which does a lot of uh, research on peace. Or, uh, they do surveys of the European people. And over 70% of the people of Europe voted for peace rather than continuing to punish Russia as the alternative. So you have over 70% of the people, that was back in June, over 70% of the people wanting peace and you have over 80% of the politicians wanting war. I mean, how well do the politicians represent the citizens? Not too well, I'm afraid. Yeah, so you guys have surpassed in some ways the belligerence of the United States. So congratulations on that since Biden himself doesn't want to uh, label Russia a terrorist state. Maybe we've inspired you. Are you, uh, our government has inspired your governments, I mean, but are you surprised that, that Europe is in some ways... Um, I actually just I interviewed Jeff Sachs, the economist Jeff Sachs, and he was saying that he's not surprised that America, the United States, is being belligerent and and opposing peace. But he's a little bit surprised that um, that Europe is being that way. Yeah, I mean, look, at I think we all are since the beginning of the war. And I think people all around the world are kind of scratching their heads and saying, my God, Europe has shot itself in both feet. Um, it's one of the biggest losers. Obviously, Ukraine is the biggest loser. Uh, Russia's not exactly winning either. But Europe after that is really suffering badly, primarily economically. Uh, we've obviously been in receipt of millions. I think it's about seven million refugees now from Ukraine who are all given status uh, as a European citizen, they can come in, get social welfare, whatever, you know, access benefits and so on. And that's as it should be. We believe that should be for any 
asylum seeker, but unfortunately it isn't. It's only if you're from Ukraine, but that's a, a different story. But then the energy crisis and the cost of living crisis on Europe means absolutely that companies are shutting down, jobs are going to be lost. There's the emergence of tension now with the US in light of the fact that European dependency on Russian gas has been replaced by uh, contracts with LNG uh, from all over the world. And of course, the revelation that we're paying four times as much as you're paying for the same LNG, which has caused a bit of tension between the Atlantic partners. Not too happy with that one. Penny beginning to drop, but yeah, it's been economic sabotage really and they've willingly kind of gone along with it. Well, the, the first time the Europeans actually objected to it was uh, when Biden introduced the Inflation Reduction Act because this was a real wake-up call for the Europeans and uh, you, we had the likes of uh, the High Representative Joseph Burrell coming out and saying, oh, America, you're imposing measures that uh, are hurting us economically. Now, I, I'm kind of wondering what planet he was living on before now because the Americans have always done whatever they feel like doing anyway. And But... Uh, this combined with the fact that it's become uh, an open secret that uh, we're buying LNG gas from America. They're charging us four times more than they're charging their own business. Uh, and these people all think in business terms more than citizens' terms, right? So wh what they're looking at is you have, you have, a, you have a company, for example, uh, in the US, uh, let's say they're making cars, and you have the same company trying to make the same car uh, in Europe. But the guys in Europe had to pay four times more for energy than the guys in America. Well, what chance have the Europeans got of competing with them? And this is all uh, as part of the effort uh, to punish Russia. We've introduced sanctions against Russian gas and oil at a great cost to ourselves. And we're going to pay an awful lot more for it to the Americans. And aside from that, it's a huge rollback on our environmental ambition because LNG is frack gas. It comes from frack gas and it's filthy. It's the dirtiest gas that ever came out of the ground. And we are promoting the excavation and exploration of more LNG in the US and other places. Uh, we're obviously going to buy it off those lovely people in Qatar as well. Uh, but uh, we're forgetting about our environmental ambition. We're going to park some of it in order to punish Russia and uh, and at the same time, we're going to enrich America. So America don't know its luck. They're getting uh, gr great money for their LNG. They're going to expand their exports. They're building extra terminals uh, at the moment in the Gulf of Mexico. And their, uh, their arms industry, which helps to put your president in power every four years, uh, are, it's bonanza days, happy days. Uh, things were never better. And for people who... Um don't live in Europe. I think people don't really have a sense. Well, I should say people in the United States, because I think if you're someone who lives in Libya, you do have a sense. But Americans, I don't think, understand what NATO is like. And they think of it as a kind of diplomatic almost core, as opposed to a quite belligerent one. So what is the, how do people in Europe see NATO? And can you discuss a little bit of the, the legacy uh, of NATO? I suppose it depends where you are in Europe would be one of it or who you talk to. I mean, there would be quite a well-developed understanding of NATO as a sort of a, a war machine in certain parts. Like there's been some big anti-war, anti-NATO protests in the likes of France and Italy and so on. But in 
Eastern Europe, it's always been presented as a sort of a bulwark against the, well, former Soviet Union and now uh, Russia in the main. And unfortunately, the leadership in a lot of the um, uh, Baltic states and Poland in particular are particularly conservative, particularly Russophobic and particularly war-hungry, to be honest. Their obsession is in annihilating Russia rather than serving the interests of their own people or trying to live peacefully on the one continent. So I think there is a greater understanding in maybe Western Europe than in Eastern Europe, like the rapid acceleration of EU membership taking in a lot of those Eastern European countries all those years ago after the collapse of the Soviet Union. One of the key reasons, apart from getting a pool of cheap labour for Western Europe, was to develop NATO. So they're kind of in that camp, you know. Uh, obviously, NATO's legacy, nobody could point to anything good that NATO has done anywhere. What we talk a lot about here is Libya, because the consequences of the NATO destruction of Libya are felt in every single part of European policy, because Libya used to be a kind of a bulwark of regional stability, really. In North Africa, the Libyans were one of the wealthiest uh, African countries, the oil revenue there. I'm not saying they treated the migrant population brilliant or that Colonel Gaddafi was a hero, but they got a better cut of the country's resources uh, than many other uh, nations in Africa. And he developed a certain independence there. But of course, at a certain stage, he fell out with the US and they went in and basically took him out through the auspices of NATO. And it's only really recently that we looked at the footage of Hillary Clinton crowing about that. And it's one of the most sickest, disturbing footages that we've seen. I mean, the Gaddafi was hunted down. He was sodomized publicly with a bayonet shot in the head and left there in the streets. And she basically crowed about that. We saw, we came, he died. And the, the interviewer goes, oh, that wouldn't have anything to do with your visit. And she goes, ha, ha, ha. Oh, oh, I'm not saying. But it was just shocking. And obviously that country is in bits now. It's not even a country. It's hardly functioning. And it's now uh, the thoroughfare for mass instability all across the Sahel. And that's a, that's your um, NATO. It's, you know, slave markets, rape, torture, everything. Well, I, um, NATO was formed, I think, in 1949. Um, it, it was formed very much, uh, it was formed by the Americans in order to keep the Europeans in tow. It was to go, it was to make sure that the Europeans were on page for uh, US imperialism, uh, not objecting to what the Americans were doing. Uh, we're all on the same side. So it was used as a tool by the Americans uh, to keep the Europeans subservient uh, in that area. And up until 91, uh, the fall of the Soviet Union, some people did in Europe, a lot of people actually saw NATO as a defense alliance against a possible uh, bad Russia. And they would argue that, oh, we had no war with Russia during the Cold War because we had NATO. So, but if NATO was just this defense uh, against uh, a possible uh, badly behaved Russia or badly behaved Soviet Union. The argument kind of died in 91 and NATO should have been dissolved then. But we've seen a very different NATO since then because they've become very expansive. I mean, uh, not only did they uh, destabilize the whole East European region and close to Russia's borders by moving eastwards, and which led to the 
uh, present-day instability. But they've become very aggressive. Uh, they played a very warmongering role in Afghanistan. They did it in Bel- Belgrade. They did it in Libya. They did it in Iraq. Uh, they're now actually looking at playing a role uh, in uh, the Asian Pacific and uh, to counter China. Now, I mean, this is the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, right? Now, what in God's name are they doing uh, anywhere close to China? I mean, the truth be told, NATO is a war machine. It promotes the military-industrial complex, and it supports U.S. imperialism. It supports U.S. empire, and that's its raison d'etre. It has nothing good to offer the citizens of Europe. We want peace. We don't want war, and we don't want NATO. We'd love to see it abolished. And so what's motivating those in the United States, or I should say, I guess, the U.S. government and European governments to not pursue peace? Well, I suppose we we see here, and we've no reason to think that the U.S. is any different, that the European Union is totally captured by lobbyists, and one of the biggest lobbyists are the military-industrial complex, and it's their uh, agenda that's been fueled by this, really. There, there is no other beneficiary in town on this. I mean, the cause of peace is so patently obvious for ordinary people. It's so common sense that we shouldn't really be having a discussion about it at all. Uh, and that includes everybody in society. But the, the big winners are the, the arms industry and the lobbyists controlled Brussels. And I presume they control Washington as well. I mean, your presidents get elected off their payroll and then when they come to power, they have to return the favour. And obviously, as you'd know, uh, most of the money that has been you know, earmarked for Ukraine uh, in military aid never leaves the States like it goes to all the US arms companies that begin with. So I think that's what's talking uh, against the backdrop of this. It's also, it's incredibly sad that uh, the pro-war people in America and the pro-war people in Europe, mainly the politicians backed up by a, a complicit mainstream media, are promoting a war where only poor people Poor Ukrainians and poor Russians are dying, mostly Ukrainians. And von der Leyen made an awful mistake last week because she actually said that there was over 100,000 Ukrainians dead. Now, she had to edit the video because the Ukrainians uh, are are in denial and they said a maximum of 13,000 have been killed, which is obviously uh, a pretty conservative figure. But whatever the figure is, uh, the rich people from Ukraine are not dying in the war. They're poor people. Only poor people die in war. Rich people don't die in war. War is stupid. War is always stupid. And uh, the less privileged die in the wars. There's less privileged uh, Russian soldiers dying too. And uh, we've said all along that uh, we don't approve of this war. We don't approve of any war. We're anti-war. We're pro-peace. We think uh, Putin was 100% wrong to invade. He, He was provoked but he still shouldn't have invaded. And uh, he was wrong to invade. It's a breach of the UN Charter, which we still think uh, merits respect. And uh, he breached that by invading Ukraine. He, he, he disrespected the sovereignty of a nation. We give out about the Americans doing it every day of the week uh, for the last 70 years. So we have to give out about the Russians doing it too. And what's the solution, do you think? If he was provoked, let's say, what do you think some of the, um, the what kind of diplomacy do you think could happen? 
Well, I mean, he should have held out at that time. I and mean, we didn't think that he had no alternative. Even a week before the invasion, Schulz, the German prime minister, was on record as saying that you can't have peace in Europe against Russia. You can only have peace with Russia. And yet a week later, after the invasion, they became the biggest um, sort of supporters of the war with the commitment given to increase military expenditure by Un, you know, unheard of uh, levels and so on. So I think France and Germany at that stage, Europe was divided. France and Germany in particular were feeling the pressure. Um, I think if he had held out a bit more, and there was evidence as well that some of the uh, allegations of the mistreatment of people in the Donbass by the Ukrainian authorities, that some of that was coming to light, that if he had held out a bit more, that would have, I suppose, come into the public domain a bit more. That's been blown now. But the only solution now is to sit down again and talk peace. And for us as Irish people, it's really embarrassing. I mean, we are on, we're in Europe, we're a country that was formerly colonised. We got a seat on the, Europe, on the UN Security Council for a couple of years, by basically <laughs> prostituting our neutrality and our history of peacekeeping and going around and marketing that. And people said, oh God, yeah, we let Ireland on the Security Council. We're on it. A war breaks out in Europe and we're the biggest, one of the biggest warmongers sitting around the table where it took Mexico, another country that was also colonised, to raise the idea of peace. And actually a majority of people there in the UN support that call. It's just they're not the... U.S., white, North, Atlantic, North, uh, you know, global North countries are not on that page, but everybody else is. And that's all any war can be resolved is that the international community gets behind people and sort of said, lads, you have to sit down. That's what happened in Ireland. I mean, they go on about Putin being a madman and, oh, you can't talk to him. God's sake, like there's fellas in Africa and Rwanda and so on, cutting each other's heads off, boiling fellas' heads in pots and they all sat down and sort of resolved things at the end of the day. There's been horrific violence. The idea that people, Putin is mad, is just a, a nonsense. The Russians have already agreed a lot of deals in terms of humanitarian aid, in terms of grain and so on. Of course, they would sit down and, and discuss the settlement as well. But the international community or maybe the global north part of it doesn't want to go there yet. They still think there's more to gain out of this war from them. Maybe winter will change that. It's going to be a really difficult winter. It's already getting cold. Um, the refugee crisis is already getting out of hand. Um, yeah, may maybe that will help change it. I mean, there, there was a three-month period before the war where it looked as if um, that diplomacy and dialogue might come to the fore and that sanity would prevail. Uh, I would say that that uh, Putin was under pressure from uh, the, the stronger nationalist element uh, in Russia in relation to the Donbass. He was probably uh, it was probably perceived by them that Putin wasn't do, wasn't doing enough to protect uh, the people uh, of a Russian culture in the Donbass region. <clears throat> but yet, at the same time, um, okay, he was looking for a commitment that Ukraine would not be brought into NATO. And it was very foolish of the Europeans uh, not to agree to it. Right? Whatever about the Americans, it was very foolish of the Europeans to say, you're, you're right, in the interest of peace and stability in the region, the idea of Ukraine going into NATO is madness. 
you could have had a scenario where NATO could put, were able to, would have been able to put missiles on the on, on the on Ukrainian territory that could hit Moscow in four minutes, and they wouldn't have had a facility that could defend against it. So Russia had genuine security concerns, but yet at the same time, uh, was Ukraine going to go into NATO? this year or next year or the year after or any time in the next five years or the next 10 years? I don't think so. And I don't think Putin... Uh, I think if Putin had been stronger, I think he would have refused to invade. But then on the other foot, uh, we honestly feel as well that if Merkel had still been in power in Germany, there was a less likelihood of war breaking out. Merkel was the one real strong uh, member state leader in Germany for the last while. We didn't necessarily like her politics, but she was tough, she was strong, and while she had a good relationship with the Americans, it was never at the expense of Germany. And Germany came first, and she was prepared to have a, a, a good relationship with the Americans afterwards, right? And there was a lot of pressure on her uh, to end her engagement in Nord Stream 2. But she wasn't for Buckland. She wasn't going to be turned by the Americans. She was going to act in the best interest of Germany. And I honestly think that if she had been the Premier, uh, the Chancellor, uh, in those three months leading up to the war, I think there's a very good chance it wouldn't have happened. But sadly, we've, we're, we're at a juncture where leadership among the member states uh, isn't spectacular. It's, kind of, it's pretty weak. And leadership at European Union level, is pathetic. We have von der Leyen and we have Joseph Borrell as the two main figureheads of our foreign policy. And I'm sorry to say that both of them have left an awful lot to be desired and have not helped matters. Uh, Borrell still thinks the war should be won on the battlefield and uh, von der Leyen has been obnoxious in many of her comments. Uh, she has brought very little rational thinking to the equation and uh, a, a huge, huge disappointment and a very unfortunate time for the people of Europe that to have such weak leadership at European Union level. To hear the rest of that interview, as well as the full interview with Lev Galinkin, please join that Patreon at patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show. Thanks so much for listening to The Katie Helper Show. Please remember to rate and review the show. The Katie Helper Show is produced and edited by Brad Bloom. Josh Bregman is an associate producer. Clips are done by Tyler Sullivan and Phantom Fanta. Our theme song is by the band Cordova. Follow me on Twitter and Instagram at KT Helps. That's letter K, letter T, H-A-L-P-S. And like The Katie Helper Show Facebook page. Once again, please join the Patreon at patreon.com slash The Katie Helper Show. See you next time.